The great hero of our knowledge of evolution is Charles Darwin. Everybody knows that, pretty much. When Darwin was a young man, he considered becoming a minister. His father was particularly in favor of him going to seminary and becoming a minister, and warned the young Charles that he was kind of lazy and was in danger of being a disgrace to his family. <laughs> Charles did not really want to become a minister, so he ended up going to medical school for two years. And while he was in medical school, there was a botany professor who, interestingly enough, was also a minister. A lot of ministers did science as part of their life at this time. It's quite an interesting phenomenon. This botany professor happened to find out about a ship that was going on a surveying voyage, and this ship needed a naturalist. And so he told Charles about this opportunity to get a job on this ship, and he went and presented himself to be the naturalist of this ship that was called the Beagle, and got the job. The voyage was to last about two years, but it extended to almost five years that the young man spent on the ship. During the time when the ship was at sea, which was about a third of the time, he was seasick most of the time. That's a lot of seasickness. <laughs> But apparently he spent a lot of that time writing in his journal, writing notes about what he was learning. And during the time when the ship was uh, in port and he could be on shore, he would be out looking at everything and was apparently a keen observer of nature and took lots of notes about what he saw of all the various animals. There was a particular stop on the Galapagos Islands that made a lasting impression on him. What he noticed was on two different islands, there was this species of finches, the same species, but on one island the finches had longer bills than the other island. And otherwise they were the same. And so he posed himself this question, well, why do these finches have longer bills than this? What, what is the reason for that? They live on these islands five miles apart or whatever, same species. And this question became a big question for him about the whole way that nature works. And eventually he came to the conclusion that the reason the bills were different is a very simple idea that species evolve from adaptation over long periods of time so that there must have been a reason that had to do with the different features of those islands that in one case it was more advantageous to have a long bill and on the other more advantageous to have a short bill and that's over a long period of time the ones that had the most advantageous adaptation survived and grew in population. That was the idea. 
So this idea was an aha for the young man, and it made him feel that things kind of fell into place about what was going on with animals in the world. And so when he came home, within a year he had developed this idea into a theory, and it became, eventually he would publish it and become famous for this theory. As he approached uh, the time when he was going to publish it, he didn't publish this for quite a long time. Uh, he actually heard about somebody else who had the same idea named Wallace, and he decided, well, I better publish my book. As he came close to publishing his theory, he was aware that it could cause upsetness in the world. He was aware of that. And he was concerned about that. And yet he really had a lot of confidence that what he was saying was true. And he wasn't really considering not saying it, he was just concerned. And as a matter of fact, he was 35 years old at this time, he wrote a letter to his wife, who was a Unitarian, by the way, although apparently she couldn't get him to go to church that much. <laughs> In the letter to his wife, he basically says, if I die before my book is published, I want you to publish the book. And he left aside a sufficient amount to cover the publication of his book. And he, he, he was 30, there was no reason why he should die, but he was concerned about it and had apparently a fair amount of anxiety about what was going to happen when he published this book. He was not an egotistical or showy person. He was apparently a rather quiet and, quiet and studious kind of person. But he knew that this idea would be a shock to many people. For if species evolved over time for reasons that were explainable in naturalistic ways, then where would be the place for the traditional creator God, whose role was the one who to be the one who made all those animals, who created them. And there was a fierce reaction when he published his theory. Many religious people were upset, just as he suspected they might be, and as a matter of fact, some still are today. But not all religious leaders responded that way. Many responded positively, and particularly the Unitarians and other uh, religious liberals, many of them accepted Darwin's work at, without going through a crisis of faith and generally applauded his work as an advance of, of human knowledge. So right from the beginning of the publication, not, it is not accurate to say that all the religions reacted negatively because that's just not what happened, but many did. Now, I'll bet you, uh, many of you have either seen the play or the movie called Inherit the Wind. And in this movie or play, the movie's adapted from the play, we hear the story of what's called the Scopes Trial in Dayton, Tennessee in 1925. It's sometimes called the Monkey Trial. And what happened in, in Tennessee in 1925 is that a young school teacher was uh, prosecuted 
for teaching evolution to his class. He was, I don't know if they physically came and got him, but they prosecuted him for breaking the Tennessee state law. I'm not sure exactly what that law said, but he was prosecuted. And there was a trial, and it was a huge media scene. People came from all over the country to see what was going to happen to this young man. And there were two really famous lawyers who took the two sides. The side for the prosecution was taken by a man named William Jennings Bryan, who was a well-known politician of that time and had run for president several times. And on the other side for the defense of the young teacher was Clarence Darrow, who was a famous lawyer in his own right, kind of a civil libertarian, um, maybe liberal is the right, right word. And in the movie, by the way, he was played by Spencer Tracy. Some of you probably know who Spencer Tracy is, but maybe some don't. He was a big actor a long time ago, 400 years ago when I was growing up. Alternate facts. <laughs> Clarence Darrow, by the way, was a speaker in our church during uh, the period where we, we call Sunday evening lectures. As a matter of fact, Kathy Carter, do you have the receipt, don't you, for his train ride? Yes, you do. <laughs> was it really? Let's talk about it later. Anyway, it... He did speak here during our Sunday evening lecture series in the early part of the 20th century. So it was a two bit, very big, well-known, famous people on the two sides of the case. And a wonderful movie, and I believe it was done by local theater here about five or six years ago as well. So they battle it out. And of course, it's like the word of God against the sort of black... You know, evil of this sort of uh, frightening scientific theory. And that's the way it's cast. And it's a, it's a wonderful story. It's a story about America. It really is. At the end of the play, and at the end of the real Scopes trial, the young science teacher was found guilty of breaking the law and was ordered to pay a small fine. And this was a huge trial, too. And the fine, so the, that was kind of, a, in a way, a trivial penalty. And I'm not sure if the young man paid it or not. But that, at the last scene in the movie, where you see Spencer Tracy standing in the courtroom, and he's leaving the courtroom, he picks up two books and puts them under his arm. One book is Charles Darwin's Origin of Species, and the other one is the Bible. And he puts the two books under his arm and sort of looks very wise and pensive and exits the courtroom. And so we get, at least from that kind of uh, point of view, we get the idea that maybe both of these books have some value. So can these two really coexist, religion and evolution? Well, it depends who you ask. Uh, a professor at Meadville Lombard, the seminary where both Linda White and I attended, former dean there, William Murray, says that there are four ways to resolve this dispute. 
One way is for science to reject religion as meaningless and just declare victory. Just forget the religious part. Science wins. Way number one. <laughs> way number two, <laughs> the religious people reject science and say that they're just plain wrong and affirm their faith. Religion wins. All right, are there any other possibilities? Does this have to be a duel to the death? Well, there are several other possibilities. One of the possibilities uh, was put forth by Stephen Jay Gould, an evolutionary biologist who wrote lots and lots of books and became a very popular writer in the United States. Uh, a real evolutionist, by the way, who also was a member of a church and sang in the choir, interestingly enough. His solution to the problem is usually referred to as NOMA, which is an acronym <clears throat> that stands for Non-Overlapping Magisteria, something that everybody understands. Non-overlapping non magisteria simply says that basically science has its part of the world and religion has its part of the world. The part of the world that science has is basically about the facts. And in the realm of the facts, science is the place to go. Religion is about meaning, purpose, values, morality. And so, in that part of the world, religion can legitimately have a voice. And it's sort of like if the two just don't fight with each other and stay in their own schoolyards, then everything's okay. But if they cross over, then you have problems. Like, for example, if religion wants to say, we actually have the real facts about creation, that would be a problem, because it's a, it's a transgression it's trespassing is what it is. So that's Gould's solution, that the two can coexist in that way. And that seems like it might be a good solution, and quite a few people think that that works. But many people think that science and religion cannot really be separated in that way. That both of them are constantly kind of transgressing on the other side's turf. The findings of science seem to increasingly want to say something about all areas of life, including the meaning of life and questions of morals and values, like which behaviors will make us happy and whether the death penalty is really a deterrent, all kinds of questions that would seem to maybe be in religion's side, but science has something to say about them, and religion doesn't want to have any boundaries either and wants to say something about the facts of life. So it may be difficult to totally compartmentalize science and religion so that they never get in each other's way. And by the way, that, plays out on, that drama plays out on school boards all over the United States, right? When it comes time to choose textbooks. So Professor Murray offers another alternative. And the other alternative is, is that religion could adapt to the advances of science. So it's an adaptation that needs to take place according to this fourth possibility. 
So religion could incorporate emerging scientific knowledge into a changing and evolving religious worldview. During the last week, just this last week, I heard both a Muslim speaker and a Native American speaker say that their religions were evolving. Just in the last week. So that's a word that gets used by lots of people. And it doesn't necessarily mean Darwinian biological evolution, but it has to do with this wider view of evolution that includes culture. So what would happen if religion tried to incorporate the insights of Darwin and perhaps come up with a new way to look at religion? Obviously, different people would do it different ways, but what kind of religion would that be? A religion that took evolution as factually true and not the enemy, but just the way things are. It's just the way things are. A Unitarian Universalist minister, Fred Muir, believes that not, not only can this be done, but he argues that this has enough wisdom in it to save humanity. That's a pretty strong argument. Let me tell you what he says that would look like. So one of the qualities of such a religious view would be to recognize that everything is always changing all the time. It would be a religion of change. There wouldn't be anything in the universe that's not changing. Now, one of the traditional ideas of God is that God is unchanging. God is a stable absolute. And so Fred Muir argues that that would be gone because evolution would say that everything is changing all the time. So whatever religion might survive that would have to be a religion of constant change. And there are religious views that, that argue that. Um, so that's a possibility. It would also mean that the God who sort of sat up in heaven and came down, I guess, and created the animals, just sort of like, you know, with the clay, that God would be hard to argue for anymore. That one would be a tough one. And so for many people, that would have to be let go of, although that would not mean that all ideas of God would have to be let go of, but that particular one would have to. Muir says that one of the things that religion would have to uplift if it was affirming the wisdom of evolution is the value of balance and sustainability. So through evolution, nature sustains a balance in the world through the cycles of life and death and who survives and who doesn't survive. Throughout all of that, there is a balance that's maintained. And so any religion that would survive in that way would have to lift up this idea of balance and sustainability, how to keep the whole thing going. The flow of life and death and all creatures constantly adapting to their environments work together to keep life as a whole in a balance that is sustainable. That would have to be an important part of such a religion. It would be an ecological religion. It would be about ecology. Another thing that would have to change is, and it has changed enormously already, is the view that humans are the center of the world. 
I mean, from an evolutionary point of view, we are just small little creatures on a little planet somewhere. You've all seen those posters, the We Are Here posters. We are part of the web of life, but not the main show. Lots of creatures become extinct, and Fred Muir argues we could too. There's no reason why that wouldn't happen to us if we're particularly unwise and don't adapt well. So we are not the apple of God's eye. And actually that particular model of God probably wouldn't work in this evolutionary religion. Muir says, that, and Darwin agrees, by the way, that there are no higher or lower creatures in the world. Darwin is very, there are no higher or lower creatures. There are just different creatures. And all creatures are going about the world attempting to survive and satisfy their needs and to keep on living. And that's what everyone is doing. The bees, the ants, the zebras, everybody. So there isn't any higher or lower. He says each living creature is trying to make sense of life. It wants to adapt and survive. And so one of the things we human beings need is a real dose of humility. And this religious viewpoint would put us in a much more humble state. We would not be the special creation of God above everybody else. We would just be some of the creatures on this earth trying to make sense of life. And it would be greatly to our advantage to live in balance and sustainability with the other creatures on the earth. That would make lots and lots of sense. So we need this humility. Fred Muir says that Darwin gave us a liberating gift. He freed us from being the center of the universe. We don't have to try to do that anymore. That's not who we are. We are free from this egotistical burden of having an inflated view of ourselves, where we are it, and everything else just serves our needs. That is a way of life that has proved not to work, and it's proving it every day. So we could let go of that domination model of who we are and just be amongst the creatures of the earth. What would be left to do? What would be left to do would be to live with a sense of wonder and openness and exploration. In fact, this point of view, as Amy told so nicely in the story, affirms that we're all part of one giant cosmic family. We're all related. Which we sometimes say, but we don't think about it too long before we move on to the next thought. We're all related. And this kind of relationship lends itself to a kind of nature religion. And there are many people who have gone down that path. Emerson was one of them. Thoreau was another. William James was another person who went down that path. Um, Carl Sagan says something 
very close to this when he talks about when we see the expansiveness of the universe, billions and billions, and we somehow feel that we can be in touch with that, then he says that's a spiritual experience. And so those kind of experiences would be lifted up. I think that evolution is a fertile ground for mystical experience. And I think some of these nature religion people, Starhawk is another one, have these sense, these experiences of unity with all that is. And I think evolution is a way that uh, promotes that kind of experience. I had one of these experiences once in my life. I was on my way home from a conference with Michael Dowd and Connie Barlow, who are traveling evolution evangelists, who spoke here several years ago. And I had been with them for about three days, I think, talking about all this stuff. And I was sitting in a McDonald's of all places, a great place to have a spiritual experience, by the way. <laughs> I was sitting in the McDonald's taking a break from driving home, and I just looked around at everybody in this McDonald's, and all this, I just saw all those people as an experiment of evolution. That all of us were different experiments. Let's try this. Let's see if this works. Let's try a tall one. Let's, talk, let's try one who's really, really good at music. And it wasn't an intellectual thought for me at that moment. I just looked and that's what I saw. And it was a lovely feeling. And it was a way of affirming everybody in that room. I, don't, I didn't know anything about their personal lives. I don't know if they were school teachers or plumbers or... I didn't know anything about them, but I could just see that they were all experiments of this great... Creativity, And I think we can keep that word creativity if we want to. A huge creativity that just keeps producing more creatures. And all those creatures are looking for a good way to live. And some find it better than others and those qualities grow. And then the creatures grow as well. It was a wonderful experience. It was an experience of the worth and dignity of every person to me. Every person had worth and dignity as being one of those trials, one of those experiments. One family. It was a sense of intimate relationship and of unity and community. And I got that after going to the Evolution Conference. It just happen. These are feelings that we are sorely in need of these days, in our days of division and suspicion and inflated egos and exploitation of nature. We need these values. We are also sorely in need of developing a culture of respect for science in a time where our viability on earth depends upon taking seriously 
the warnings of science. It is absolutely a survival issue for us to develop a culture that respects science. And a rejection of science on religious grounds will not be an adaptation that works. Unless I'm sorely, sorely misled. That will not be an adaptation that will help us survive and sustain life. And we need a culture that respects the idea of truth. That there are certain things that are extraordinarily likely to be true and certain things that are extraordinarily unlikely to be true. And we need to respect that. So a young man whose father wanted him to be a minister so that he wouldn't waste his life set off on a voyage of discovery and through patient observation arrived at this idea which some have called the greatest single idea of all time. I hope we can grow in a sense of unity and community and humility and common purpose that this powerful idea supports. And I hope we can experience that sense of wonder that it may bring to us as we try to participate and build a sustainable culture on this planet. I hope we will be wise enough to heed the wisdom of science in our time as the viability of our way of life is on the line. And I hope we will celebrate the fact that we are all kin. We are all part of one giant earthly family of immense variety and impressive skills that is gradually evolving if we make good choices into a sustainable life for all.